What we had was Jesus, of course, because we're studying the gospel, right? And we had Jesus, and uh, he met his first opposition. If you'll remember, uh, Jesus was uh, walking throughout the land, and he was healing lepers. He was healing those that had problems, and, and he, was, he was also dealing with, uh, last time, he, he healed a leper. Excuse me, not a leper, but a paralytic man. He was not able to walk, and he healed him basically kind of to show that he had the power to forgive sins on earth. And, you know, he asked the, the Pharisees who said, you know, who is this man? God, only God can forgive sins. And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. And so he was going to show them uh, whether they realized it or not, that he was, he was in fact God. He, was, he had the power to forgive sins. And so in order to do a, a work that would show that he had power to forgive sins, what did he do? But he said, rise, take up your bed and walk to a paralytic man. So as we saw the faith of those men that brought him, we also saw a man get healed because they brought him. They interceded. They lifted a man up to God that, that couldn't get there himself. He didn't know how to fix his problem. And and, and so Jesus is walking around and he's seeing individual needs. And that's the wonderful thing I've noticed as I've read through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus, when he sees you and I, when he sees people in a crowd, he doesn't just see a face. He doesn't just see you know, their t-shirt. He doesn't just see what they do for a living. He sees a person, a human being. And when he sees that human being, he doesn't just see who they look like or what Everyone assumes that they are, but he sees a person in the potential for what they could be if they were given over to him. And not only that, but he sees them and he, he, before they ever become anything more than what they are at that spot, he purchases their life with his. And that's what he did. And so we look at the theme of this book is, is service and sacrifice. That's the theme of Mark. And I've said that every night because I wanted to be so clear in your head, I want you to think of the book of Mark and go service and sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. And that's what Mark emphasized. But I've mentioned once or twice that because the, because Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So last week we read the story and we started in, or I'm going to start in verse 15 to kind of overlap a little bit, to get the context. It, it says that it happened that he, as after he picked light Levi, he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. And so in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to first be poor in spirit. You have to realize your state. That's what he said in Mark cha or Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with poor in spirit. And, and he says they're about the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they shall see God. Or is that pure in heart? Oh, well, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't have it in my notes here. But there seems to be a theme here. All of a sudden, not as just everyone that has a need or an ailment noticing that Jesus can do great works, but, but also it seems like these Pharisees and these scribes and these religious leaders are showing up to all the gatherings that are available. 
But they're showing up for a different reason than everyone that has needs. They're showing up to, to find Jesus screwing up and doing something wrong. They want to catch him in blasphemy. They want to see him stumble and fall in some way, see him fail. Because they want to show everybody because he's encroaching on their kingdom. Until this point, Jesus comes on the scene and the religious leaders run things. Aside from Rome being in charge of the empire, the religious leaders are kind of lording it over those who were alive and well in that day. Those who were downcast and downtrodden, they would kind of lay heavier burdens on top of those people. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and he's casting out demons. He's healing paralytics. He's helping you know, people that have leprosy, which is incurable, be cured. And so because of that, we saw that from Mark chapter 1, 21 through about chapter 2, verse 12. I wrote down a few things, but he also healed Peter's mother-in-law. He cleansed the leper, he forgave and healed a paralyzed man and many others that were not told specifically. It says that many came to him and found their, um, they got their need met. Jesus was able to be what they needed. So these scribes and Pharisees in various ways have begun to inspect Jesus You've heard of Jesus referred to as the Lamb of God. Well, in this case, he's getting inspected by the religious leaders, just like the Lamb would when they would bring it for the sacrifice to the temple. But they're inspecting God himself, and so they, I don't think they realize that they're inspecting something that they're not going to find any flaws, but they're looking for outward flaws. That's all that man can see in another person. So the scribes and the Pharisees start to inspect Jesus for flaws to see if he meets their requirements, to see if he fits the bill. They're looking for Jesus to make a mistake. And last week we read about how the scribes and the Pharisees questioned the fact that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors. In order to have a better idea of why it was so upsetting to them, you have to know that in their culture to eat with someone was more than just a casual thing. To partake of the same loaf, the same bread, or the same bowl of soup, you know, uh, if you have children, you, you know that if, if one of them touches the other's food, they get all upset. Well, this is the same kind of thing. They, they don't want to get cooties. They don't want to eat from the same bowl. You know, you already drank out of that straw. Now, obviously, when little kids drink out of your straw, you want to check for the floaties. So it could be, you could get the cooties. But in this case, um, they would sit down and eat together, and they would have the same loaf, and they would have the same bowl that they would dip from, and, and as they would do that, they believed that as you partook of the same food, that you would become one with that person. So to eat with them was to kind of condone who they were or what they did. And so that's why they threw such a fuss about it. But as the food was being eaten, you see that it's not what goes into the body that causes defilement, but it's what comes out. That's what Jesus will later teach. So heaven forbid they should get the unholy cooties of some sinner. These Pharisees, they were so unwilling to go to the ones that really needed to get to know Jesus, that really needed to get to know their God, Yahweh. And so verse 18, we'll finally start in the text. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and they said to him, why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So let me get this straight. I want to stop there. First, they don't like what he eats or who he eats with, but now they don't like the fact that he doesn't eat, that he doesn't take time to not eat like they do. He's not following their traditions. 
What is their preoccupation with the consumption of food? You know, that's a good question. From, from the reading here, this account in Mark, and then reading Matthew and then Luke, what Luke had to say about it, it seems as though the disciples of John came to Jesus. They questioned him about why, and he, why he and his disciples were not fasting regularly. They asked this because it was their regular practice and pattern for John the Baptist's disciples and also for the Pharisees to fast twice a week. Now, the times that they were called to fast were on one of the feasts, but they were never required to fast twice a week. So it was, it was man's rule. It was man's idea. They thought they would look more holy. But let's first of all look, what, what is fasting? You've heard of the different medical reasons that why we fast. If, if you've ever had to go to the doctor and maybe get some blood work done, sometimes they'll ask you, you know, don't, don't eat for 24 hours. Or many of us, because we want to be healthy or we want to you know, lose some weight real quick, we'll stop eating for a, a period of time or, or we'll stop eating a, a certain kind of food like the Atkins diet. We'll stop eating carbohydrates so our body can do whatever it does because carbohydrates, for whatever reason, are harder to break down and so they stay in our system longer and then they kind of become us. They stay with us. And so we are always willing to fast to do those kind of things for our health, right? For our bodies. But, uh, <clears throat> lost my place. There's another way that people fast. And in Christianity, we fast in order to weaken or to quiet our fleshly appetites in order to be strengthened in our spirit. A month ago or so, we saw Jesus fasting in the wilderness immediately after his baptism. And during his time of fasting in the desert, Jesus was tempted by Satan and in order to overcome temptation, Jesus fought using the word of God as his only offensive weapon against the wiles of the devil. So prayer and the word of God feed the spirit just as food feeds our bodies. Jesus mentioned this during his temptation when he said, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we have that. It's, it's all contained in this, this Bible that we can carry around. What you might notice is that we're extremely faithful in feeding our bodies. We're careful to see that it has three meals a day. But so often we're careless about feeding our spirit. And that's what Jesus was emphasizing there. And so fasting, the idea of it is to take a set amount of time to instead of feeding our bodies... To feed our spirit. The time you would have taken to maybe partake of a meal during the, maybe you get an hour lunch or a half hour lunch, or maybe you just have a certain time that you spend eating every day. Think about the time that adds up over the course of a day, and you could take that time instead of feeding your body to feed your soul, to eat God's word, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So <clears throat> you could do that, or also uh, what they used to do is they would, instead of you know, you got to go buy lunch or you have food that you're going to eat during the day. They would actually take whatever finances that it would take to buy a meal or they would take the food that they were going to eat and they would bless someone else that maybe didn't have any food. It was an opportunity to bless the poor, those that didn't have any food at all. And so there's many opportunities to fast. So that's, that's what fasting is about. That being said, John's disciples wondered why Jesus' disciples weren't doing the same thing. Well, we're doing it. Why aren't you? You know, you've never done that to anybody. You've never had a discipline that you knew was good for you and, and looked at somebody else and said, well, why don't they do it? They'd be better off like me, you know. 
But we have to be careful when we compare ourselves with ourselves. Paul writes, the Corinthians, that we fool ourselves. We, we make a mockery of something that may be good for us, but it's not a law. It's not a precept that we have to follow. And so on another note, I think that it's very interesting that they would ask about this, since fasting really wasn't supposed to be a public thing. It's a, a personal thing. It's a devotion to the Lord. It's taking that time to feed your spirit. But it's not something where we're supposed to be making a big show about it. Um, the Pharisees had a habit of making it a public display. Jesus had a few words for the Pharisees from Matthew 5, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. He said, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You see, I guess I find it interesting that John's disciples were looking to see if Jesus' disciples had been fasting, since they could not see that they had fasted and noticed instead that they were going everywhere, eating and drinking as if, as they went, they wondered why they weren't doing as the other religious folks had been doing. As a matter of fact, it was well known that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. So Jesus said simply, they already received their reward. They got what was coming to them. They got somebody to see them fasting. And that's all that they were going for. They were trying to make an outward show. Well, following the Lord is not supposed to be an outward show. There will be things that will come out of your personal devotion with the Lord, but it's all about your devotion to Him because first of all, he purchased us, but second of all, he purchased us for a relationship. It was supposed to be about him, not us. So verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Wait a minute, what's he talking about? Why, why is he talking about a bridegroom? What does that have to do with fasting? Well, the answer is, in verse 19, he's referring to himself, himself as the bridegroom. See, in that culture, and by the way, I, I used to get really confused when I was reading the Bible. I would read the word bridegroom, and I was like, wait, is that the bride or the groom? It uses both words. Uh, it's just groom. It's the word that we use for groom. So, you see, Jesus is the groom who has come for his bride, the church, and when the groom comes the first time for his bride, in many cultures, it's not like we are used to seeing. They would come and they would bring a bride price. Maybe it was some animals. Maybe it was a dowry of some sort. They would bring money. And they're not purchasing the woman, but they're, they're giving money to the, um, the, to the father to show, hey, I'm serious about this. I would like to marry your daughter. And then he would leave for a time and he would go and prepare a place for him to take his bride back. But since the time of giving the dowry, they're technically considered married, though there's no physical consummation. He does not return to his bride until the place is prepared, though they're technically married. And when he returns for his bride, they go to the place that the groom pre prepared and they consummate. When the groom leaves to prepare a place, it could take a week, could take a month. It could take years. Uh, the point is, is that during the time that 
he is gone preparing a place. What's she doing? You know, ladies, what do you do when you're, you know, when you're getting ready to go on date night? You know, you, you get before the mirror, you start preparing your face, you start getting a dress. You know, when somebody decides they're going to get married, there's all this preparation about, you know, making sure you look your best for your spouse. And that's what she does. She prepares while she waits. She actively waits. She doesn't just sit around and go, when's he coming back? What in the world? She prepares herself. And so to keep with this imagery... Jesus is the groom who has come for his bride, the church. Now, this is the first time that we're reading about the first time Jesus came to bring the dowry of the payment for his bride. The payment being his own blood, his life, his death, his resurrection, which he had come to pour out as a payment for our sins against God. But during his time here in his first coming, there was no reason to fasting is kind of a hungering, if you will, for God. You can't hunger for a God who is standing right next to you. You should just stop hungering and just talk to him. Spend that time with him. And so that's what these men were doing. They were with Jesus everywhere he went. However, in verse 20, Jesus says that there will come a time when the groom is taken away. And remember, he said he was going to prepare a place. And in the meantime, we're preparing and awaiting his return with much anticipation. We hunger for the time when Jesus will return, but until then, we're to be busy about our Father's work, building His kingdom, going and making disciples, seeking out and leading those who are lost and without hope to the Lord Jesus. Until one day, He will return for His bride. That's us. I know it's kind of weird, but we're the bride, men. <laughs> we're part of the bride of Christ. Until one day when He will return, And he'll take us with him to the place that he's prepared for us. That being said, Jesus teaches them a truth using two parables. Parable is just a word that means to cast alongside. It's an earthly illustration to teach a heavenly meaning, a heavenly... uh, It was something that the audience could relate to in order to communicate a heavenly truth that might not otherwise be as easy to communicate. So Jesus starts with the first parable in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. Now, if the right slide's up there, you'll see two pictures. Um, I've torn jeans like a gajillion times. And actually, I always tear them in the worst places, so I can't ever wear them again. But my mom has always been really good about taking those new patches and and placing them over the spots because you know nobody ever rips their jeans unless it's their favorite pair so you don't want to throw that thing away so we get really attached to it right and we go uh, somebody needs to fix this for me please I just got them worn in you know but what happens is if you put a new patch on a set of jeans when you wash them if you wash them hopefully what will happen is that the the patch will shrink And the jeans that you've been wearing for weeks and weeks and weeks and years and however long, they won't shrink because they've already shrunk all they're going to. So that patch shrinks and the regular piece of the clothing doesn't and the patch pulls on the rest of it and where it was already torn anyway, it's torn even more. So it's harder to patch the next time. So he gives that analogy. Jesus here is introducing a new relationship with God By the giving of his son, he's walking around and making relationships with people. And their old religious system 
of the Mosaic law is getting in the way. They're going, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And he's introducing them to a relationship that doesn't have to do with sacrifice and offering, but rather calls for a humble approach and a broken heart over sin. The old religious system that they were so proud of missed the point of the law. The law was to show them that they couldn't keep all the commandments on their own and that they needed God in order to live righteously. Those who would trust in their system were so sold out to that, to it that if God wanted to do something new, they'd be torn. If he wanted to put something new into their lives, they'd just try to put it on top of the old thing and it wouldn't match up, it wouldn't jive, it wouldn't connect. So in the next one, in parable two, he's just teaching the same principle using a different story. I like to think about this because I wonder if he knew in the crowd, it always says that Jesus knew the hearts of the people. I wonder if he knew that there was somebody there that you know wouldn't get the thing about the jeans or the, the clothing. And so he's like, well, I'll give a wine analogy too. He, he knows this, right? He knows what we'll respond to. So verse 22 says, no one puts a new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So the same truth is being taught here about a new relationship with God. The way that they would make wine in those days was not like they do now. They didn't have these big barrels where they would filter out all the the skins. They they crush the olives nowadays, and then they they filter out the skins. No, not olives, but grapes. That'd be really bad-tasting wine. Even bad-tasting grape juice. Olive oil, hmm. Okay, so... But they would take the grapes and they would crush them. And once they would crush them, they would filter out all the skins of the grapes. Well, on the skins of the grapes, you would have yeast. Naturally, it would just be there for whatever reason. But since they nowadays would filter out the skins, you wouldn't be able to get the yeast. You need yeast and sugar to make wine. So, but what they used to do is they would use an animal skin. They would sew it around the edges. And they would, there might even be a picture in there. And what they would do is they would crush, not the olives, but the grapes. They would crush the grapes and they would put all of that into a wineskin. Now, I think they would remove some of the pieces first, but mainly they would put all that in to this wineskin and then they would seal it up. Well, when you ferment wine and the skins are in, or the, the outer shell of the grape is in there too, there's yeast in there. And what yeast does is it's an organism, and it eats the natural sugars that are in grapes. And so when it eats the natural sugars, it produces two things, alcohol and carbon dioxide. Now, we all know about the alcohol part, but the carbon dioxide in, in a sealed container, just like a soda bottle, will create pressure. And as it does, the skin, that's why they would use skin, will expand and contract as needed. And as it expands, the wine becomes fresher and it becomes the alcohol content grows. And then you have this wine over the years that will eventually get better. But as they made it, that expansion would happen. So what he's saying here in this verse, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. That new wine is the stuff they're getting ready to make. It's getting ready to ferment. The new wine will produce that gas. And if they take what's on the right hand picture an old wineskin that's old and crusty, 
and they put new wine into it, yes, you can fit more wine in there. So some guys would do that. They're like, hey, I can use the old one. But the problem is, is that when the gas is produced, the wine skin will what? It'll burst. And then you spill the wine and there's no joy. You don't get the product you're looking for. And so Jesus is telling them in a very, I think, a nice way, don't try to patch me on top of your old system. The things that they were getting upset about were not written in the law. They weren't the things that were the most important. They were their own hobby horses, their own soapboxes. So Jesus here tells them, don't try to put me into your deal. I am your deal. I am your religious system. Follow me. Because they were old and crusty, they didn't receive it. It cracked them and it made them kind of upset. And so they get upset with them and they continue to follow him around, looking for other problems with this game. So verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here they are on the, on the Sabbath day, and they're walking through a field, and they've been walking with Jesus. We don't really get a full picture of it because we don't know how much they're doing because Mark's account, every time there's a story, it's the, and then immediately, and now. And he just continues to pursue on relentlessly through the Scripture. But what we know is that as they're walking through this grain field, they're plucking the heads of these wheat seeds. They're, they're plucking them off the, the wheat Now, whose grain field is it? It doesn't say, right? But what we know in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24 and 25, says, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. You can eat some, you can have a handful, but don't harvest them, they're somebody else's. But it says, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck your heads, or excuse me, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, in the same case, you can have some, but don't take it all. It's there for the taking if you want it, but you're not to harvest it. That's stealing. But, <clears throat> so, but what was the problem that the Pharisees had with it is that the way they looked at it was technically when you pluck the head of the grain, and then what they were doing is they would they would kind of rub it in their fingers and get the chaff and all the stuff around it to come off, and then they would blow on it. That would be like harvesting it with a sickle, although they weren't using a sickle, but technically they were harvesting. And then they would pull it out, and they would do this. They would thresh it. They would crush it. And as they would crush it, the chaff would come off. Then they'd blow on it, and the rest of it would come off. They would use a winnowing fan to do that. But they would do all of this to prepare the grain. But these guys were just taking a couple of them and doing it and then popping them in their mouth so they could get some sustenance, so they could get some protein. So the way the Pharisees looked at it, they were working on the Sabbath. They were harvesting. But the way that they were looking at it was, I'm hungry. Oh, look, a snack. It's like having a granola bar without all the extra syrupy stuff or whatever they put on the top. And so that's what they were doing. They'd been walking around with Jesus for days. So... What they do is they get a little bit of sustenance, and first thing the Pharisees do is go, oh, they're working on the, you know, they're working on the Sabbath. They had had a problem with this. So verse 25, Jesus responds, 
He says to them, have you never read? Now, first of all, I love the fact that he says this. It's a little sanctified sarcasm. He says, have you never read? Because all they did all the time was read Scripture. That was the one thing that they were called to do was to know God's Word, to know His law inside and out. So when he says, have you not read? it's It's a direct blow to their ego. It's a direct blow to the pride. It was everything that they knew. They even ruled it over everyone because they knew it so well. And so, have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord over the Sabbath, or of the Sabbath. So Jesus asks the Pharisees, Have you never read? And then he goes on, and he references an Old Testament story that they should be well aware of, because they were in the Scriptures all the time, where David and his men had begun to flee from King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, that it was interesting. I read through the Bible every year. We're doing this chronological Bible reading. Guess what I read this week? 1 Samuel 21. It's like God knew exactly what I needed. He was feeding me. So <clears throat> they hadn't planned their journey. They were fleeing from Saul. They hadn't planned anything. So since they hadn't planned, they needed some food. And so they stopped at the first place. They stopped at the tabernacle. And when they got there, They said, hey, I need some food. I have a human need. It's a basic need, but I'm hungry. And they were, you know, they wanted to have food not only to eat, but for provisions for their journey. And so the the priest in the tabernacle took the showbread and he gave it to them, even though it wasn't lawful, because the way that he looked at it was human need supersedes religious right. It wasn't so much about following the law to the point that people are starving to death. It was about meeting human need in that time. And so the priests met that human need. They had compassion. They had mercy. They showed action with their compassion. He says there, oh, and and second of all, the Sabbath was made for rest. Um, God, when he created the heavens and the earth and everything that we know, when he created Adam and Eve. On the seventh day, he stopped and he rested as a pattern. He knows because he made us. This is our own owner's manual. He knows that every six days we need a day of rest. If we take that day of rest, it'll go well for us. If we work for seven days straight and then try to work another seven days straight, we'll wear out. It's the same reason we change the oil on our cars. However many miles the manufacturer tells us. Now there's always, you know, argument, is it 2,000? Is it 3,000? Is it 5,000? But the point being is the manufacturer, whatever they write in that book, I'm going to do it. Because they designed the vehicle. They specced out what kind of oil they would use. So God, in the same way, created you and I, and he created us in a way that he knows we need a day of rest. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And besides that, the Son of Man is Lord also over the Sabbath. In other words, since his Father created it, he knows when we need it. 
and it was for rest. So, is, you know, have you guys ever tried to take a rest day and not eaten anything? I don't think you'd get much rest. You'd be upset. You'd be bothered. Um, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day. Just a second. Much better. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. So not even the cattle were supposed to work on that day. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. He made it holy. So verse 1 of chapter 3 says, He entered the synagogue again, and and a man was there who had withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Verse 3, And he said to the man, who had the withered hand, stepped forward. And then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. This should have been a simple answer, right? Verse 5, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Who is this they are who is this they that they're that are watching Jesus? Again, it's the same people, it's the the Pharisees. And they were looking at this situation, they were saying, "Hey, we can catch him here. It's the Sabbath. He's in the synagogue. This man has a withered hand. We always know that he goes for the person with the biggest need." And so let's watch him screw up. Let's watch him try to do work on the Sabbath. Now, at the same time that they're scrutinizing what he was, they knew he was going to do, they had absolutely no compassion on this man who, for all I know, came in that day, had never been to the synagogue, and was looking for some relief. You know, to, to not have your hand these days is probably just as difficult as it was then. They worked with their hands. They were an agrarian society. They were farmers. They were people that had to work with their hands. They didn't have a computer. You know, their best bet nowadays would be maybe even to have a left hand so they could use their right hand to use the mouse. That's what I'd have to do at my job. You know, but he needs his hands to provide for his human needs of eating, maybe having a place to live, maybe for his family that has those same needs. And so to to heal his hand is is more than just, well, you know, his hand had a scratch on it. It was withered. He couldn't use it. He was unable to use it. And so Jesus sees the hardness of their hearts when he asks them, point blank, is it, is it better to do evil on the Sabbath or to do good? To take life or to give it? So he asked the man to stretch out his hand. And <laughs> Jesus sees the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts And notice here the self-control that he takes and uses. He could have obviously went off on these guys, but instead what he does is he kind of goes off on them by blessing that guy. He says, oh, you think you know me. 
You think that, you know, I should avoid going through with this, but this guy has a need, and so I'm, I'm here to meet it. And so he does it anyway. Jesus sees the hardness of the Pharisee's heart, and he's angered. He was grieved by the lack of compassion on this man, but he did not sin by retaliating or losing control of his emotions. Instead, Jesus asked them whether it's lawful. No one responds at all. And so he answers his own question by doing good. It was more consistent with the intention of the law to restore this man's hand, even on the Sabbath, than to destroy this man's hopes for the sake of keeping human tradition. So in Matthew's account of this instance, he writes, and I love this because he brings it out so clearly. Matthew chapter 12, verse 11 through 12. says, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it, and lift it out. Of how much more value than, than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If a man has a sheep and he falls in a ditch, he's going to pull him out. Why would you not pull this man out of the ditch that he's living in? It's amazing to me that since they had hard hearts towards God, even though they saw Jesus miraculously restore a man's hand, they did not praise the God they were supposed to be so in touch with. They weren't blessed by seeing it, but they could not because they were more in love with their own deeds and how it looked to other people than they were with the God who desired so much to have a relationship with them. Since they were closed off to what God had to say to them, they were closed off to who God wanted to reach through them. You know, if we close our hearts to what God's speaking to us when we spend time in his word or when we go to church, we're missing out on the fact that he, he wants to bless us. He wants us to be open to receiving His Word, not just so we can be blessed, but so that through us He can work, so that what He teaches us can have an impact on other people's lives. That's how people meet in, uh, Jesus personally. He's not walking amongst us. And so what He does is He gives us His Spirit, and then He walks in us and through us. He shows people his son. He shows people his father's heart. So essentially, all the scribes and the Pharisees, they're upset at the fact that Jesus doesn't follow their rules. I guess if there's one thing I want you to get out of it, they're upset because he doesn't fit the mold that they had for him. They don't like that he associates with sinners or that he even eats with them. They, they don't like that he doesn't follow their traditions. They don't like that he's more interested in meeting human need than following their tradition. And it's amazing to me that all the things that the Pharisees didn't like about Jesus are the things that amazed me about him. They're the things that brought me to him. He was willing to associate with me, even though I didn't follow church tradition. He was more interested in reaching out and healing me than he was in making me look like a Christian or fit the, the religious mold. And he was more uh, interested, excuse me, he's... Do you, do, do you know how I know that he was more interested in reaching me than conforming me into some religious mold? Well, I know that because he sent to me people that treated me like Jesus treated each person that he comes into contact with the gospel. He sent me people that, that, that in effect are imitating Jesus. They're showing compassion. They're loving people. They're not so worried about rules that they can't, you know, maybe skip church to go give somebody a ride to work if they need it, you know. He was, he was ministering in a way that when people followed him, they had an impact. They weren't in their own clique. 
Jesus was willing to make some people hate him. I guess I want to pull, pull that out last. Jesus was willing to make some people hate him if it meant that I would be healed, that I would be restored and given a relationship with him personally. And he did the same for you. He was willing to take on the brunt of all the, the Pharisees' you know, baggage and, and garbage. And from this point on, what I want you to notice in the last verse, the religious traditionalists conspire and they plot to kill Jesus. However, Jesus never wavers in his love. He's willing to deal with that. He's like, that's, that's worth it to me. When they realize how much he loves them and see it in action, these people that he reaches out to, the result is that they'll be willing to do the same for him and for those that he loves and who he sends them to. And I can personally praise the Lord for that. You know, Had people been more interested in church than, than in showing Jesus to me, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a follower. I wouldn't be a disciple. I wouldn't have joy. I wouldn't have been able to, to witness to my own family, you know. And so God has a bigger plan. It's not about us. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They had made it so much about them that God couldn't get any glory. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word and how it shows us that um, even when people were denying you and <laughs> when they were opposing you, uh, your opposition truly gave us our position. When you were willing to take the brunt of that to the point of death so that we could have life in you. And so, Lord, uh, we're not the Pharisees necessarily, uh, but there might be some of us in here that have some Pharisee in them. I know I do. And so, Lord, show us the ways that we're crusty and inflexible, unwilling to yield, unwilling to grow. And Father, uh, get rid of the old wineskins. Make us new wineskins. Uh, help us not to try and patch our new idea of you on top of our old religion. And Lord, give us new garments. Give us white garments, pure garments. And prepare us for your return. Lord, help us to live in light of your return. Help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And not hunger and thirst after approval by men. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would bless as we uh, finish in song. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless as uh, we finish up our weekends. Lord, send us back to work tomorrow or whenever it's going to be full of you and uh, freshly renewed in you. In Jesus' name.